fundamentally, a lot of these large language models are what we describe an inch deep and a mile wide. They're all right at lots of things, but they're not great when you go into something very, very deeply. I think what media organizations, certainly ones that own the IP, what all of us have is what I describe as an inch wide, but a mile deep. That was Sanjeevan Bala, Chief Data and AI Officer at ITV. This is the DPP Podcast, and I am Editorial Director Edward Qualtro, and I am pleased to introduce the second episode of what we envisioned as a two-parter speaking with expert practitioners in artificial intelligence. In the first part, we spoke with a media tech startup co-founder and CTO who is also an Associate Professor of Theoretical Computer Science, and if you haven't listened to Johanna Bjorklund's conversation with Rowan de Pomeray, then do so. Of course, we also wanted to speak to the end user practitioner for our calm reflections about AI. So I was delighted to speak with Sanjeevan at 9am on a day we had both returned from some annual leave. As such, here is that conversation with Sanjeevan discussing how ITV is approaching AI and making its bets, how he is dealing with sudden interest and intrigue in his role, getting the leadership engaged in hands-on Gen AI workshops, the potential of 10x opportunities, when to partner, build or buy AI solutions, and a bit of conjecture about what impacts AI will have on the industry over the coming year. Hi Sanjeev, and thank you very much for joining the DPP podcast. The hardest questions first of all, could you please just introduce who you are, maybe where you are as well in your job role? Hi Ed, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Sanjeevan Bala, I'm the Group Chief Data and AI Officer at ITV. Uh, so ITV is an integrated publisher broadcaster uh, and what that means is you know, we, we create content, produce it, we promote it, distribute it and monetize it uh, through both the streaming service, a linear service and obviously content we make available in other markets. So my role at ITV is very much linked to our more than TV strategy which effectively will set out our five-year plan around how we would drive growth uh, as an integrated publisher broadcaster. What my role often entails, Ed, is really helping the organization figure out where do we use data and how might we use data, as well as artificial intelligence, to drive value for our business and very much linked to our more than TV strategy. Thank you. So your background was data, I believe, and you were working in broadcasting and media before. And then you joined in 2020. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So could you give us any background info on, you know, the idea behind it being introduced, this role, this chief data officer, or sorry, chief data and AI officer as it as it is? Yeah, I think it was very closely linked um, to the more than TV strategy, effectively, Ed, Um, because what we were looking to do um, and and when the strategy was set out, it was very much around how, given the fact that we're an integrated publisher broadcaster, how might we drive growth in our studio business in terms of content creation, um, how we exploit a lot of the IP in our studios business, but also our streaming business. And now, obviously, ITVX is our sort of beacon product that we have and how might data kind of drive that side of things now given the growth strategy across both our studios business our broadcast business and streaming business fundamentally we're going to be underpinned by data it made absolute sense for this role to be created and effectively allow us as an organization uh, to reimagine what an integrated broadcaster publisher broadcaster might look like but critically 
work very closely with business stakeholders to then drive that value narrative and benefits you can realize from using data in a way that can then drive growth. Thank you. So that's probably a good segue then is working with these stakeholders to how many different sort of functions you're you're working with, how it's embraced this kind of sort of data culture, but also maybe in sort of the last year, maybe a bit of the AI side as well. So when I was speaking to our CEO, Mark Harrison, we wanted to sort of share some calm reflections about AI and media. We There's been lots of talk. We were at one of the trade shows and it's almost if some of the AI washing of sort of the late 2010s has, has come back again. So could you tell us a bit about sort of how you're managing any hype and enthusiasm around that how maybe there's you've had sort of concentrated interest on your sort of your your team that maybe wasn't there before from people who now really really sort of 101 experts perhaps if I was being a bit nasty about some people in their in their in their AI knowledge yeah and it's it's very topical at the moment Ed um so I think I think the way we approached it uh, organizationally is is we sort of posed two really opposing questions really when the whole generative sort of you know appeared on the scene so i think the first was around value creation so therefore what are the opportunities that this presents for us as an organization and how do we think about doing so and exploiting some of those opportunities in a very responsible way so that was a sort of the opportunistic sort of side of that equation on the flip side the other sort of narrative and, and conversation we've certainly explored is you know how might this destroy value um, so what does this mean in terms of the competitor landscape barriers to entry, you know, our particular business model and, and how might generative in the wider ecosystem, what impact might that have on a, on a media and entertainment business? So we sort of explored it through two lenses, if you will. I think with all of these sort of, I guess, technology innovations, you know, I think you, you often realise, certainly creative businesses, it's not really about the technology. Don't get me wrong, Ed, it's very important. Fundamentally, these are people transformations, right? And people changes and cultural changes. So the way we approached it, certainly at ITV, was um, really three key things. Firstly, how do we go about educating colleagues across the business around the art of the possible? You know, what, what, how do you demystify some of these things for colleagues across the business? The second was then sort of um, what we call sort of empower, which is sort of thinking through, given we're an IP business, it's great we can raise awareness of what all these great tools can do. But the key thing really is figuring out how do we ensure we put some guardrails around this? Because fundamentally, with a lot of these large language models, there's a couple of things you need to think through, right? Firstly, what happens to the things you put into it? Who owns the IP then? And what happens to it? And where does it go? The second bit then is in the model itself. How do we understand what's going on within the model? The third bit then is when you get things out of it, what rights do you have and what IP do you actually own in it? Because fundamentally, you're representing and the the outputs are going to be represented by our brand. So those three things are quite critical. And so for the guardrails helped our colleagues across the business really understand how do they explore the opportunity to do so responsibly. Then the third phase, Ed, is, is experimentation. So what we've done is we've mapped a whole series of value cases. And rather than go after sort of just marginal gains, we're looking at where might there be 10x opportunities. So I think what we've done is we've taken a very pragmatic and measured approach to it. So I think we've all seen, you know, a load of hype cycles from things like the metaverse and blockchain and all those things that, you know, the industry has been plagued by. And I think what we've done is we've really in, embraced a business-driven approach to where we see the opportunity and a people-driven approach. Because fundamentally, if the creative teams and the editorial teams and marketing teams, if they're not keen to embrace and explore some of these opportunities, no amount of the innovation and technology is going to drive that, right? So you've got to take it from the business perspective first 
to then drive the onboarding of this. Thank you. And I'm going to ask you about some of those sort of 10x opportunities maybe in a moment. We've got a couple of little tangents first, which is, first of all, what's the response been to those engagement plans and getting people to talk about you know what what you can do what we're just about to release a, a piece of research and one of the broader themes is that the respondents who are sort of CTOs of European broadcast said there's generally lots of support for transformation initiatives certainly from above us lots of cases from the rest of the organization but if they don't really know what it means for them you know they buy into the concept of the business plan but maybe not what the personal changes are. So how how's the engagement been of speaking to people about what what this means for them, you know, the positives of how it changed their job and the things that will, that will make their, their job potentially different? Yeah, so one of the things I think I learned very early on as I got into media entertainment is that there's a deep understanding and a creative process that goes on that is the core DNA of a lot of these media and entertainment organisations. So when we kicked off the strategy, we, we've always maintained this is much more of a co-pilot opportunity than an autopilot opportunity, right? So this isn't about replacement and automating everything, right? This is much more of around, you know, augmentation, human augmentation. So it's it's the combination of both the art and the science, right? So that was very much the, the first narrative, which I think helped sort of disarm a lot of the initial anxiety that you certainly, you know, hear when you look at any of the external media and press that gets represented. I think what we observed as we went through the process, and one of the things we I think we did very well is we brought in, for example, prompt engineers and some of these sort of skills into the organisation, and we ran sort of very immersive interactive sessions. So, for example, we got some of our leadership teams to sort of come up with a new um, show concept, as an example, and they did that within, let's say, an hour, working very closely with prompt engineers, both with uh, you know generative but also video and text tooling. And what was really interesting, I think, is it's very different when I think you're reading about these things versus in an immersive session where you're coming up with ideas and you're seeing it live being generated. And I think the power of sort of bringing that into the organization meant the individuals that are on the creative side of our organization could then immediately connect and could start to think through and imagine, oh, this is how it could help our roles. This is where it might actually play benefit in, in this particular genre. And I think it was that piece that really helped unlock the opportunity for us there's some very obvious use cases as well right ed so when you think about the world of personalization in the area of marketing for example the opportunity to create you know highly personalized clips and promos that you might use in different formats different um, synopsis for example a lot of those things very quickly are very sort of applicable to our businesses and i think because we demonstrated and sort of brought some of that internally and, and actually showcased it i think that helped move beyond the hype cycle and then sort of make a, a bit more of a personal connection. The other big thing we observed, which was really interesting, actually, is for a lot of the hype in these tools, a lot of them are sort of what I would describe as sort of consumer grade, right? So when you think about you know, organizations like ourselves, you need proper control, governance, enterprise grade kind of software as a service you know, applications. And in quite a few instances, they're not there yet. Another learning from us was that a lot of these tools are solving what I call vertical problems. But the reality is, Ed, we have horizontal workflows in our organizations, right, as, as do most companies. So it's all very well having a tool that does, let's say, language translation. But we have to pull the, you know, the video assets out of our digital asset management system, throw it into a, you know, a browser window, let it do its thing, pull it back in. All this in and out vertically isn't going to really create you know, a huge productivity gain. 
it's the other theme we're seeing is it's great you've got all these sort of tactical tools that can do great point solutions and point things but actually a lot of these organizations and companies like ourselves we have we have quite integrated horizontal workflows to move you know from ideation to content to post-production to all these steps and therefore that horizontal piece hasn't necessarily been unlocked yet and i think that's how we're starting to learn and observe um, the opportunities with this presents that's fascinating. I sort of like the idea of workshopping it with the leadership was kind of un- unpick some of this before someone tries to run too far with it. One of the questions we asked uh, our other uh, guest, Johanna, who's the associate professor, was um, what tangibly has changed, if anything, from a sort of a, a technological point of view about capability? Have you got a sort of an answer uh, to that from the sort of the end user, the broadcaster uh, perspective? Um, yes. And- and if that sort of made your job any easier or harder, or or if it's just a kind of a, a relatively gradual, you know, innovation improvement that, that now just hit a bit of a tipping point. Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest change we've observed compared to sort of let's say, you know, earlier iterations of you know artificial intelligence, data science, machine learning, a lot of that sort of language, is I think the rate at which a lot of the capability has now been what I would describe as commoditized, right? Um, and what's been really interesting is not only has there been commoditization, the interface, the onboarding, the way in which you know consumers can now interact with a lot of the capabilities has also been sort of fixed, if you will. So we've we've gone from a model where, you know, historically you might need, you know, vast teams of engineers and platform engineers, data engineers, data scientists to kind of get access to some of this capability. You've now got, you know, very intuitive easy to use interfaces that has meant that the onboarding for colleagues in the business as well as you know consumers and prosumers is incredibly easy and i think that's what i think has then accelerated adoption interest in this space because it, it's largely been commoditized so on the one hand it's getting easier to kind of access you know realize some of the benefits experiment trial innovate all these things the flip side i think has been also been increasingly challenging is how do you take on a much more ethical, responsible approach to this? It's great that you can onboard very quickly and the on-ramp for a lot of these software as a service platforms is incredibly easy. It's very intuitive. The interfaces are all very simple to use. But what you've then got to think through as an organization, certainly an IP organization, is how do we understand where IP is going? How do we understand once it comes out, who has rights to it? How do we ethically think about this as an organization? How do we link that to our organizational purpose? And these are much more sort of fundamental questions i think that that needs to be answered because yes the technology has made it easier but i think there's definitely a purpose-driven approach where you need to think through well what stance are we going to take with this how is this going to align with our own organizational purpose and how do we then explore the opportunity within that i think that's the bit that's been some somewhat harder because it's incredibly easy to access how do you bring those two things together and i think that's where we're seeing that slightly more of a challenging piece but that's where the guardrails we're establishing um, within our governance groups has been tremendously valuable and powerful because it's allowing us to both educate and enable innovation within the organization. It sounds quite similar to some of the sort of shadow IT discussions from the, the mid-2010s and there's the consumeration of IT, like you said, the slick UX on top of tools that were already there. And now it's, yeah, ex- exactly. How do you put the guardrail in to make sure that this is used responsibly and in a way that's not going to harm our organization because there's sort of some significant dangers there as well so early you sort of teased you were exploring some of the use cases some of the the smaller ones and some of the bigger fish could you give us a, a bit of an overview of sort of how you see things um the areas that you think 
or the opportunities that you think provide the business the biggest benefit any things that you're sort of quite happy to ignore you know let some other organizations do the experimentation and the and the risk or any even initiatives that you would want to showcase mention share or otherwise yeah absolutely yeah so i think because we've taken a people-centric approach to this through the educate program what we've found as we've gone through this is across our entire value chain there's opportunities being identified everything from how we produce content both post-processing ideation there's lots of ideas emerging in that space, right? And um, how we think about the promotion of our content, both in terms of you know, our marketing leaders, but also how we think about that in terms of promos and some of those areas. So across every step from production to promotion to monetization in terms of the advertising piece, there's absolutely value cases and sort of use cases being mapped uh, across the entire organization. I think what we're observing though is Actually, as, you, as you're coming up with all of these ideas and you, you think about the productivity benefits you're likely to see, where do we incur the most cost as an organization across our entire value chain? And where do we create the most value? And what gets interesting as you start to look through the lens is you know, there's a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around you know, things like the ideation at the, the creative end of at the start of this process. And we're not disputing that. But also there's a huge amount of value when you think about the marketing opportunity, right? Which is already intuitive to how we operate and it's taking sort of the, the level of personalization to the next level. So is that while especially the now you've, well, the, the one interruption order, is that especially because you've got such a sort of much more direct relationship with the consumer now because of yeah, think, new platforms? Yeah, I think with, with ITVX um, and certainly the way marketing's evolved at, at ITV, not only can they sort of tailor promotions on platform, so, for example, you know, with a, within a pre-roll um, or within sort of, you know, general sort of promotional activity or on-platform or ITVX, but there also exists the capability to reach consumers off-platform, right? So marketing can now promote on Snapchat, Instagram, TikTok, for example, and you use all this information to then promote and reach viewers off-platform to then promote a lot of our shows to get them back on and view content on ITVX. And because all of that capability already exists from a MarTech stack perspective, what a lot of these tools allow you to do then is sort of take that to another level. So across our business, you know, we are seeing a lot of these sort of value cases. I think the piece for us now is um, as we've done the mapping, and this is sort of business-driven mapping, we're now trying to identify which of these could potentially create a 10x sort of opportunity for us and which of these are going to be marginal. Because I think the thing you often see when a lot of these technologies emerge is companies get inundated with lots of, you know, thousands of proof of concepts, all generating costs but very few deliver and convert and don't really scale. And this is where the, the importance of enterprise level solutions versus sort of consumer grade solutions. I think we're still in the early phases of some of these things. The bits we are seeing that's really interesting for us is um, where the creative parts of our organization already use you know, software as a service platforms like an Adobe suite, for example. Um, and they're very familiar with that interface and with that interaction. Where those companies decide to extend out and provide generative capabilities, there's a very natural on-ramp for the creative teams, right? Because they're really used to using a lot of these technologies. But some other tools where you have to kind of come out of that, that ecosystem and use specific tools, that's a bit more of a, a journey you need to go on, right? And I think the market's going to be really divided, actually, between already established tools that are already part of broadcast workflows and streaming workflows, and, and what's their strategy to onboard generative capabilities versus tactical point solutions that are very good at you know solving a vertical but probably aren't as integrated and aren't quite enterprise grade ready and i think the market's still quite early days as that evolves 
Thank you. So that's a good uh, segue then to the approach about how you develop by partner. Like you said, all of the people, a lot of the organizations you're working with and have long relationships with, are start, they're on a certain innovation cycle themselves of AI embedded in, in their systems. So how do you approach when to lead and when to sort of lean into the market and, you know, that importance of building trust between media companies and their their vendors and in a way that they've always had to be a level of trust to have an established sort of long relationship and produce for for both of you so has has that sort of changed anything how you how you work and also how you specifically though how you approach sort of ai challenges yes i think one of the things we spent some time thinking about is um being really clear around what your core competencies are as an organization and, and which things do you feel you need to kind of absolutely own because it creates a differentiator versus which things can be sort of partner and buy. So that was one lens we sort of evaluated things. I think the second that's been really interesting with this particular space is the rate at which a lot of these solutions are emerging and rapidly evolving is only getting faster. And so there is that classic challenge around if you're going to build something, you've got to be really sure it's absolutely required and it's absolutely unique and your business is unique enough because the chances are another tool that's going to be commoditized will soon come out and become available either through the big tech vendors or another supplier. So I think the, the, the piece for us then is really balancing that kind of agility with time to business value. So, for example, will you get a, a faster outcome with a partnership or a buy solution versus building something internally where you may own a lot of the kind of the um, the intellectual property let's say but actually it may take a lot longer even a lot more complex there's a lot more things you need to kind of consider and factor in so that balancing act between agility and time to business value is, is quite critical around when do you think it's right to partner and buy versus go down you know your inherent sort of internal build the other piece i think we've certainly observed is um you know you can often do the economics around this and you think okay well build might be cheaper or lower cost now that may be true for the initial build but often what gets forgotten is the ongoing maintenance, the ongoing support, the ongoing evolution of a lot of these products and services that get built. And that can be quite a, that can, you know, can, can weigh sometimes down on organizations, right, in terms of the agility in which you can move within. And I think the, the last piece for us is um, in, in some ways, you know, if you're able to partner with some of the large organizations, there's an element of de-risking, right, because you can then scale these outcomes. Whereas when you're internally building, you might build for a particular use case or a value case. The scaling and productionization can be incredibly challenging. So yes, you've got a great trial, you've got you've hacked it together, and it's it's proving end to end. Productionizing it is a very different scale problem, right? And that's where the partnership and, and buying helps unlock some of those things. So not only can you do the trials, but you can then have a pathway to scale and productionize things a lot easier. I think the thing with trust has been fascinating for us because I think when you look at areas like news, for example, that has deep editorial heritage, right, and a trusted tone of voice. There's everything around, well, what does this mean in terms of brand reputation? And what does this mean in terms of, you know, what are the consumers feeling and thinking about this? So I think there's a whole element around trust, not only within the, the, the partnering base, but also what does that mean from a consumer and an advertiser and the wider ecosystem that media and entertainment companies kind of operate within? One quick follow-up I'm going to have is, is that have you seen any, and this is born from conversations we had at an event in Berlin with some European broadcasters where quite a few organizations were quite quite bullish about the quality of their data and media for organizations that are sort of innovating and developing AI tools. Have you heard of or been around any discussions where the relationship is 
maybe the power balance has shifted closer to the media owners. As in, we have the data that can make your models exceptional. Pick a question out of that if you can. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yes. I think the way we see a lot of these foundation models or large language models, right, and almost there isn't a day that goes by between before another one launches. So Bard will be the best one, then it's Falcon, then it's some other you know model. So I think fundamentally, a lot of these large language models are what we describe an inch deep and a mile wide. They're all right at lots of things, but they're not great when you go into something very, very deeply. I think what's media organizations certainly ones that own the ip as in the content asset the video asset the audio files you know the, the scripts what all of us have is what i describe as a an inch wide but a mile deep and if you think about a lot of our content and long-running soaps for example the nuance of the stories we tell not only create culture but play back british culture for a lot of the long-running soaps that nuance of language that nuance of understanding that nuance of the zeitgeist of what's happening in the here and now gets codified in our content. All these large language models don't have access to that. So I think what we're seeing is, to your, to your point, the IP and the real value gets unlocked when you're able to sort of take the, this horizontal, inch deep, mile wide type model, but fine tune it and enhance it in a way that protects our own IP with our own internal sort of video assets and video files, because that's when you then start to unlock both. I think the other big observation we're having is that the market seems paralyzed by the we need bigger models with more data, with bigger chips, is broadly what you hear, right? The next language model is billions of parameters larger. But I think we've seen this play out previously during the sort of the PC era, where there were bigger and bigger and more powerful sort of Intel chips, but actually the mobile opportunity got missed in a way. And I think what's happening at the moment, the assumption is everyone is taking the data to the model and therefore needs bigger processing, bigger models. But in fact, we think the market will move the other way, where it's about taking the model to the data. So this is all around how do you take this and process this and allow it to be applied on the edge, so where the consumers are interacting. And I think that's a very different trajectory, which means you're actually going to be looking at smaller, lightweight language models and smaller and nimble models that are using far less data, but contextually deeply relevant data. And I think that shift I think it's also going to be interesting to see how that plays out. That's fascinating. And here the the marketing team's going wild for that at the moment. Edge edge AI as a service or something along those lines. But yeah, and that's, a, that's an analogy I'm going to be borrowing an inch deep but a mile wide because my experiments are the same. Yeah, it can do the sort of the bland incredibly well across everything, but other cases less useful. So I've got one quick fire question and one that's a bit bit tougher. And let's try and get through these. I think we will. And it's about what's the data strategy and to a certain extent how that's had to be aligned with the the IT as well uh, and the governance that you've had to put in place to to support it. And, and is this work that's just, I guess, been ongoing since you've started and now the fruits of some of that labor kind of pay off because it's not like you're scrambling around for the, the strategy, the document, the guidelines, the, the processes, the processes that are in place. So how do you sort of align with the, the the IT leadership and get everyone buying into this? And I'll probably go over a bit of bit of ground we've already done, but I think there's some new stuff in there too. Yeah, and no, I, th- I think what was been really interesting um, Ed, is because we started all this and it was directly linked and cascaded from the business strategy, you know, everything then aligned very, very quickly. So for example, you know, some of our external metrics are around what we call double, double, double. So double the number of monthly 
users that are coming to the platform, uh, double the viewing hours and double the um, digital revenue, basically. And this is part of the ITVX strategy, right? So because we've got that real clear mandate, what we then set out to do was then say, okay, well, how does data and AI help drive and achieve those outcomes? And then we are absolutely joined at the hit with technology, right? Because none of this is possible without great technology. And so effectively, because it's all driven from the business strategy, that then creates the alignment around, well, how are you intending on sort of building the data capability? And how are you then utilizing cloud and other technologies to then enable the data strategy, which is fundamentally enabling the business strategy. And because we did the cascade from the business strategy, it created alignment. What you often see in organizations is where they're off writing an AI strategy or a data strategy and it's completely delinked and it isn't associated or aligned with the business strategy. And in fact, you've only got one strategy, right? And that is the articulation of the five-year plan. And then it's a case of, well, how do all these moving parts and this CapEx or OpEx investments, how does that support and explicitly drive those particular business outcomes? I think if you, if you start with that, everything does start to align and then you get everything from you know, common metrics, shared goals. When you're doing OKRs, for example, you're joining different cross-functional teams up all around a single unifying outcome. And that then galvanizes the resources, the teams, the investments to achieve those single unifying outcomes. I think that's when the real power comes in. Thank you. A pearl of wisdom for everyone. Don't have an AI strategy, have a business strategy. And I, I used to speak to the old CIO of Johnson Matthey and British Airways, and he had a phrase, there are no technology projects, there are only business projects. So I've got a, a closing question for you. So do you have any measured or outlandish conjecture about AI machine learning technologies and how they will impact media? And you can kind of have every any kind of time frame for that question. It could be a year, it could be three to five years, it could be 10 years. So measured or wild conjecture about the opportunities for AI in media businesses? Oh, that's a really tricky one, Ed. So I think um, I won't set a timeline because I think it's just too hard to read at the moment. I think the rate at which this landscape is changing is incredibly rapid. I don't think anyone genuinely knows what, what sort of the next 18, 24 are going to look like, if I could be really honest. I, I think that the, the macro themes that you're seeing, though, is a lot of this tooling is going to allow the, you know, the creation of more content. Now, does that mean better content? Because I would argue there's probably more content than any of us sort of need at the moment. The problem isn't content. The problem is discovery and search from a consumer perspective. The other big macro trend, I think, is the quality of user-generated content is going to get better. And therefore, you know, you're going to see sort of much better quality content generally being available and theoretically being distributed direct to consumer through a lot of the social platforms, right? So I think you're going to see this emergence of, you know, higher volume content, question mark, is that better or worse? Um, different forms of content, but critically, I think different ways in which that might be sort of uh, distributed. And therefore, I think there'll be a timeliness of some of that content, right? So you might have different forms of short form and some of those things that will then sort of you know, spark an interest for a short period of time, but disappear just as quickly. And I think that the thing for media entertainment companies is how do we start continue to evolve on this journey? And I think the bit that gets really interesting, Ed, is, is you know, live formats. So live sports, for example, because I think there's real opportunity there to really dial up the live experience by bringing in a lot more contextual information into those experiences. And you're already seeing it in some instances, right? If you think about what happens at Wimbledon now and, and Formula One, for example, a lot of those things are starting to start to showcase the art of the possible in those areas, which, which then creates a much more compelling, interactive and immersive viewing experience for our viewers. 
a lot will change. We don't know what. We don't know the time frame. I think, yeah. One of Joanna's comments was, um, we sort of underestimate the impact over a short period of time, but then over 10 years, it's possible everything will be will be quite, quite different. Do you have any other sort of any comments, anything I've missed that I, we should have asked you or a, a final thought? You're under no obligation to have one. But if you did have a burning desire to share something that I haven't sort of asked about yet, you do have an opportunity. No, I think I think the, the thing that we've observed is is there's an awful lot of consumer grade hype out there at the moment, right? And I think we, we've all seen different hype cycles throughout our, our trajectories and our careers in, in media organizations. So I think it is going back to basics and a lot of these things. So it's it's a people change, not a technology change, right? So if you don't get your people behind it, you don't get colleagues across the organization to understand the opportunity, all of this investment is, is going to be largely wasted, right? And the second one is is back to basics, right? So it's your use cases. And it has to be business-driven use cases. And that's the other core piece. Because if it doesn't come from within, you're going to end up spending an awful lot of money for mediocre gains. And I think that's the other the big one. So it is almost a call for back to basics in so many ways with, with this next iteration of the hype cycle. Fantastic. Sanjeevan, thank you so very much for uh, joining and talking about yeah, the genus of the role, what you're up to with the team, the opportunities and what you're putting around it. So it's been fascinating to hear. And yeah, we look forward to sharing this with uh, the DPP members and beyond. Thanks to Sanjeevan for sharing his experiences and offering those calm reflections about AI in media. And thank you for joining us. If you haven't already listened to part one with Johanna Bjorklund, then please do so, as well as making sure that you are subscribed to the DPP podcast. In the next episode, we will be sharing some conversations from the DPP Leaders Briefing 2023. And I wonder if any of the media industry leaders, movers and shakers, mentioned AI at all as a top priority for them over the coming year.